This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Ready to go back in time? Oh, I'm ready. Uh, the time machine. That's, I'm ready to get in the time machine <laughs> right. and then go back in time. Perfect, perfect. The, we watched The Time Machine based on H.G. Wells' classic novel. Mm-hmm, starring Guy Stupidface. Guy Dumbface Pierce. <laughs> directed by Simon Wells, who had directed The Prince of Egypt. And then after this, became a story artist for DreamWorks movies like Kung Fu Panda and Shrek the Third and movies like that. And Simon Wells is the great-grandson of H.G. Wells. What? Yes. Holy shit. Correct mundo. (laughs) Oh my god, that's awesome. I know. Well, let's listen to the trailer. Let's do it. Tell me about the time machine. Time machine was written by H.G. Wells in 1894. It was later adapted to a motion picture by George Powell and a stage musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber, which no, ran that, on that's not what I mean. Years. I think I'll have better luck in a few hundred years. Where do you come from? I'm from the past. You should go back to your own time. Why? There are things better left not said. Tell me what's happening here. And if the truth will haunt your dreams for all time. Oh, well, I think I'm used to that. Change the future. You're wrong. I will change it. Ugh. Tick, 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 tick. That was all over the place, no? <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. Well, the writer of this also wrote the screenplay for like a crazy number of movies. Yeah. Like Gladiator, Any Given Sunday, a terrible Star Trek movie. The James Bond Skyfall, The Aviator, Alien Covenant. The movie wow. the list goes on That's that this crazy. guy has written. It's it's absolutely insane. Now remind me what what did you think about this movie? You liked it? No. <laughs> when I saw mm-hmm. it in the theater when I was like 10 years old, mm-hmm. I was like or tw- 12, 13, yeah, whenever whatever. the fuck it was. <laughs> I was like this is pretty fun. Right. There were fun ideas, but no, this movie is not good. Right. Well, I had read that Gore Verbinski was brought in to take over the last 18 days of shooting because oh. Simon Wells was suffering from extreme exhaustion. And then oh, Wells came back for post-production. Wow. So, I mean, I don't know if, I don't remember us commenting like, this is all over the place, or if mostly I just can't stand Guy well, Pearce. It's mean, really the face. Yeah. It, it, it's not that the movie is necessarily all over the place so much as like it just goes to these places really quickly where you're like, wait a minute, why are the, yeah. there's a leader of the underground, but it like the society doesn't really make sense. It's just to get to these scenes. Right. I think. And, and I've never read The Time Machine, so I really don't know how much it kind of deviated from the, the source material. I haven't seen the, or read that, but yeah. I have seen the original Time Machine from Right, the which 60s. is made after Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And that was a great movie movie that I wonder how well it holds up like again I saw it like when I was younger than I saw this one yeah I mean well because I saw it for example the initial designs for the Morlocks the weird creatures that have Uh, that make bull sounds just to be clear in the future humans have evolved into like a docile upper species that looks like humans and then also this like underground monster race that eats the humans. Yeah, so you have like the upper intellectual races, the Jeremy Irons with the just or, severe... Or, like, Jeremy me, Irons, yeah. I think, was the, the leader of the under race. Right, but he's like real smart. Yeah, he's as smart as... But it, that's where it just all broke down right. and you were like, wait a minute, what's going on Exactly. Here? Okay, so in the movie, he jumps all over the place from like 1899 to 1903, 2030. Eventually, they end up in the year 635,427,810. So <laughs> they're going all over. But mm-hmm. anyway, I had read that the initial design for these these creatures, the Morlocks by the Stan Winston team, they were more like the book's description, which were ape-like creatures mm. with mole claws. But mm. then Simon Wells and the producers wanted changes to be able to accommodate for the human performers, and that's why they made them more kind of like humanoid and then mm. added that weird sound to them. They looked pretty cool. They were. I thought that they were interesting, and I don't know. It's, I don't think it necessarily like takes away from the story because right. we're still to just understand like this is a new <laughs> species of whatever. Right. But I also read that Vox, the Orlando Jones character, right. was originally supposed to be a robot. But at the time, Uh, Steven Spielberg was creating AI artificial intelligence, so he basically had a similarly designed robot for every version of Vox that they had come up with. So they were like, fuck it, let's just do a hologram. (laughs) So just Orlando Jones. Yeah, yeah, just him. He's he's hot right now. He's different than the robots. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, and we even in the trailer, they like 
point out that like in the movie the yeah. book the time machine was made into a movie right with it, self-referential it, like, fuck. they go he goes into the future and he goes to a museum and the museum is like oh yes the time machine written by hg wells in this year mm-hmm. made into a movie in the 60s starring Orlando uh, not Jones. then also <laughs> made into a movie in 2002 but <laughs> the, because you're watching that right now right i wish they did that <laughs> that would have been great I wish they did that science All right, so we've talked a lot on this show about time travel and like, yeah. you know, the theory of relativity and like how like people think that you actually can't go back in time and yada, yada, yada. Mm. But I stumbled upon an article in NPR called Time Travel with Your Fridge. Whoa. So clearly I had to get went and clicked away. Figure this out. Yeah. <laughs> so it's written by this research affiliate at MIT. And she basically explains that since the time machine in 1895 was published, scientists and the public at large have been fascinated with the possibility of time travel. Now, in the 19th century, scientists speculations about how they might go about actually reversing time started reaching wide audiences. And in a lecture published in the journal Nature in 1874, the physicist and engineer William Thompson, known as Lord Kelvin, described how Ooh. the world would look if it suddenly started running in reverse. He says, quote, the bursting bubble of foam at the foot of a waterfall would reunite and descend into the water. Boulders would recover from the mud the materials required to build them into their previous jagged forms and would become reunited to the mountain peat from which they had formerly broken away. Living creatures would grow backwards with conscious knowledge of the future, but no memory of the past and would become again unborn. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> so time goes backward. Right. <laughs> I also, yeah, because that's all about like entropy, right? And mm-hmm. like that, like things tend to go into a more disordered state. Like in a closed system. Mm-hmm. So scientists of the Victorian era concluded that the reason why time flowed in one direction was the same one that made heat travel from hot to cold. Okay. So they came up with the first idea for manipulating time by manipulating the direction of atoms in motion. So then these new molecular theories of heat taught scientists that the best way to control the movement of atoms was by changing their temperature. So, okay. yeah, so this, this well, guy... Because they move slower when in a colder state, right? Right. And that yeah. particles are more excited in a hot, hot state. And exactly. They're all running around. Yeah, so basically this guy Thompson was saying that while heated objects tend to reach temperature equilibrium, the reverse operation is highly unlikely. Like something that was made too cold would go back up to heat? Basically saying that the arrow of time related to heat, it's like Mm. you can't heat something with a cold object. Okay. So this is challenging that, Right. right? Now, this guy Thompson, he's talking to these Victorian audiences and they're like, yes, of course, perhaps we can manipulate this. Mm -hmm. Now, as a younger man, Thompson and his brother had tried to build a bunch of perpetual motion machines. Oh, we covered this earlier. Yes, we did. Now, not only did they not function, but many had already been thought up before. And even a friend had told him, it seems to me to be nearly as great a waste of time making attempts at useful discovery without this previous knowledge as for a person to labor at working out the highest problems in astronomy without having first gone through the calculus. (laughs) So, <laughs> You're getting ahead of yourself. Exactly. This kind of inventiveness was able to lead to improvements in like water wheels and pumps and turbines and stuff, and even elevated him by Queen Victoria to the first Baron of Kelvin. And he had the temperature scale named after him. I was going to say. Yeah. So enter the refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. Now, when the refrigerator came out, one of the first domestic fridge companies adopted the name Kelvinator, and it even attracted Einstein's attention, who applied for a patent. <laughs> and apparently, the attorney in charge of this patent was so taken aback that when he read the name Einstein in the application, he wrote back, I would be interested to know if Albert Einstein is the same person who propounded the theory of relativity. <laughs> he was like, you're interested in this? Right. So bef- Same guy who used to work in the patent office himself. That's true. Who was dealing with patents on a daily basis. Albert Einstein. <laughs> so before the commercialization of refrigerators in the 20s, the dream of reversing time by reversing the flow of heat had captivated headlines. Mm. So even though the refrigerator did not reverse the entropy of the universe, it did so locally inside a well-insulated enclosure. Okay. Now, jumping to today, going back to this article, it's like, it's saying that quantum mechanics gives us different time traveling options from those of relativity theory by showing how we can fuck with entangled atomic properties. We've talked about this before, like how quantum mechanics at least just like opens the door more. And it's, these are new 
sciences. Ways right? that one thing can affect something else at great distances. Yeah, exactly. Instantly. And so, and she refers to this 2017 headline in MIT Technology Review called Physicists Demonstrate How to Reverse the Arrow of Time. Oh, whoa. So, yes. So again, a quick explanation of the arrow of time says that at the microscopic level, the laws of physics are symmetric with respect to time, which means they work just as well whether time runs forward or backwards. But at the macroscopic level, like on a grander scale, processes all have a preferred direction. So the great physicist Arthur Eddington called this the arrow of time. The standard answer for why this arrow points in one direction but not the other is that the arrow of time follows from the second law of thermodynamics, that order or entropy, as you were saying, always increases in a closed system. This is why milk mixes easily in tea but doesn't unmix. It's why scrambled eggs scramble but they don't spontaneously unscramble. Can't get that yolk back. Exactly. And it's also why if you hold a mug of coffee, the mug heats your hands as opposed to your hands heating the coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another factor at work which is how it pertains to the idea of time travel, the universe's initial conditions. So for reasons unknown, the early universe was hot and its energy distributed evenly. So this was a low entropy state for a system that's dominated by gravity. Mm. But over time, the entropy has continually increased and this is what has largely determined the arrow of time. So they're saying that if the initial conditions determine the arrow of time, perhaps it's possible to create systems on Earth with initial conditions that could force the arrow of time to go in the opposite direction. (laughs) And these systems, eggs could spawn Spontaneously unscramble. Heat could flow from cold objects to hot ones. Uh-huh. So this pu- is like at, they saw the refrigerator and were like, "Okay, this is this closed environment where we can do the temperature thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can create a closed environment where time's arrow is going in the other direction." Well, when the when the fridge first came out in the twenties, I think that's what they were thinking. They were thinking mm-hmm. like, "Oh my god, if you can actually control this closed system, maybe right. we can do this." Now this is like. The, the experiment that I'm about to talk about is from 2017. So it's like clearly uh, a lot has happened lot in between that happened. and then and now. So what these refrigerators talk to the internet right, now? They totally do. They'll tell you if you're out of milk. Remember. Yeah, exactly. So this is how the experiment went down. So students at the Federal University of ABC in Brazil, I don't know, yeah. they built this system in their experiment in which they observed a cold object heating up a hotter one. So they, there's this mixture of chloroform dissolved in acetone, or which is nail polish remover. So chloroform consists of a single carbon atom, a single hydrogen atom, and three chlorine atoms. And quantum physicists are able to manipulate the nuclear spins of single carbon and hydrogen nuclei using a technique called nuclear magnetic resonance. They align the nuclei using a strong magnetic field and then they use radio pulses to flip one or both spins causing them to become entangled. Okay. So then by listening to the radio signals emitted by the nuclei they can work out how the quantum states of the nuclei evolve. So at the same time the carbon and the hydrogen nuclei are in thermal contact, which means that heat energy can flow from one to the other, and then the team can control the temperature of both nuclei by selectively heating them using nuclear magnetic resonance. So they, like, when one's hotter than the other, like, the heat (laughs) will naturally transfer to the other one in this system of entanglement, basically. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so we've established that this team can manipulate the, the temperatures, but then a new experiment that they did, they observed the opposite effect by entangling the nuclei in advance. So something about that process, like when the nuclei are entangled, the correlation places extra limits on the way the particles behave, which results in a kind of engine that drives heat energy in the opposite direction. So it's like spontaneous heat flow from the cold to the hot system. I know it's science. I I know it's confusing, but it's like basically they built on what they had already established. Mm. And by like messing like the manner with which they entangle these atoms, they're witnessing different systems taking place. So it's all to say that there's crazy implications for both understanding our relationship with time or Uh understanding of time as it relates to entropy. And then, you know, again, not necessarily in the realm of like, we're going to go back in time, y'all. But it's like, it might result in a new generation of devices that Mm. drive heat from cold regions to hot ones. And like the ways that those things can be applied to technologies that you're not even thinking about, why would they be? Right. I guess because I know that part of it involves sending information faster than light. So is that where information can travel backward in time? Well, I don't know. I mean, and that's the thing, you know, at the end of the day, it's like it's none of this is actually sending us back into time. Right. (laughs) Or even any object or anything. I I think it's really more... It's more abstract than that, right? Mm. It's like our basic understanding of entropy and how it's like a cold object absolutely cannot heat a hot one. Right. Or, you know what I mean? So the fact that 
that is not necessarily the case. I think just has has pretty big implications. But I, I would say in kind of a douchey way, this article at the end says, if you really want to travel in time, you might try the old fashioned way of doing it. Turn to history and literature. For as Rene Descartes God. wrote in the 17th century, for to converse with those of other ages and to travel is almost the same thing. And it's like, no, man. It's just, to me, I love the idea of back in the day, like, H.G. Wells publishes The Time Machine. People are figuring out how to make it happen. The idea that they even made the connection between temperature and like mm-hmm. how that could be related to time just based on the law of thermodynamics and entropy and stuff right, right. to now potentially being able to manipulate devices. I don't know what those devices are, but certainly there would be a need for a cold object to be able to heat another one and vice versa. Yeah. Right? Well, all of this comes down to, I think that like time's arrow makes sense to us because cause comes before effect. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if in a world where effect came before cause, we would, that would be, I guess, time's arrow reversed. Yeah. And everything that we know and everything that we understand about the world, even if you can not go reverse it, but almost like have things happen at the same time mm-hmm. through quantum entanglement. Yeah. And I, I mean, I almost get stuck on the idea of even being able to manipulate atoms and like with, with fucking mag- magnets and radio pulses and <laughs> yeah, stuff, being yeah. able to spin one, spin it the other way, get them entangled. It's nuts. <laughs> it's all nuts. It's all nuts. I wound up doing a whole deep research dive on when did time become standard around the world? Yeah. Because up until then, you know, we we used to have sundials. There was no way to know what other people's time was. Right. Okay. You were woken up by the cock-a-doodle-doo of the... the, Your rooster by Of the cock. (laughs) Exactly. I was going to say the crow, and then I was like, nope. The doodle-doo. So something interesting to consider is that, like, until the late 1800s, time itself was seen as tied to nature in a way that we don't really think of today. Mm -hmm. Like, people felt that by standardizing time, they were losing something important with their connection to the world and how things are naturally supposed to be. I understand that. Like, they felt like it was a way of standardizing humanity and losing individuality. Right. And the standardization of time is basically the product of people depending on others and needing to coordinate. Mm -hmm. Because before town, even had a standard time for themselves, each farmer would have his own time schedule, of course. which was fine until the town center became a thing and that necessitated a common understanding of time. Mm-hmm. Another reason that time needed to be standardized eventually was for weather reporting and forecasting. The really biggest driver was that the railroads needed to be standardized. Oh, hell yeah. Makes sense. Which I'm going to get into in a second. But also the invention of the telegraph and the ability to communicate instantly around the world. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start by talking about how this went down in England. So before any standardized time existed, each town decided its own time using a sundial published almanacs and sometimes instructions attached to local sundials would explain how to compute the local time differences from town to town. Oh, interesting. Okay. Although the postal system had their own internal mini time standardization in the early 1800s, the first time any town had their time changed to synchronize with another town was in November of 1840 in England, and it became known as railway time. Mm Mm-hmm. So once that was established, a bunch of other railway companies hopped on railway time and it continued to spread as a standard. Then they moved railway time to coincide with London time, which had already been established. Mm -hmm. London time, naval officers used as a reference for how far they had traveled longitudinally from London Mm -hmm. because they would have a clock that was on London time and then they would use a sundial to tell their current time and then they could figure out how far west they had traveled by how much of a difference there was. Eventually, by 1880, London time became known as Greenwich Mean Time, which became the standard for all of England. The funny thing is that there were towns who really did not want to make this change Mm -hmm. to London time. They would have two clocks displaying both local and London times in town, and they even printed up train schedules with both timetables. Some towns even added a second minute hand to their clocks, which would show both London and local time on the same clock face. Wow. I mean, I definitely, just to interject here, it's like fascinating to imagine, you know, before it was so standard, right? Right, I can absolutely understand the mentality of feeling like something's being taken away or like that standardization is, there's something not human about it because we are one with the earth, right? Like you wake up when it's daylight, you go to sleep, you know what I mean? Like I had a 
illegal basement apartment that I stayed in when I first graduated college and it was like subterranean and I remember like I couldn't see the sun and so I'd be sleeping like 17 hours right. a day and was it, like this is unhealthy yeah but anyway like you kind of had these internal clocks right mm-hmm. so I could understand that feeling strange and yet let's just be efficient dude right? you, you have a party that starts what time is it gonna be exactly <laughs> it does make this whole thing of like of like what else in my life am I looking at as time right, right. now that doesn't need to be this right. way it's a total construct I mean daylight savings people hate that yeah like, we exactly get it. so meanwhile while this is happening in England over here in the US a similar change was going on mm-hmm. things were unreasonably convoluted here sure. because the United States is fucking huge mm-hmm. to take the Midwest for example <laughs> There were 38 standards of time in Wisconsin, no. 27 in Michigan, 27 in Illinois, and another 23 in Indiana. Union Pacific Railroad had to operate its trains on at least six different time standards. That's insane. So in August of 1853, two trains on the same track heading towards one another collided because the train guards had set different times on their watches. Uh, of course. <laughs> no 14 shit. 14 people died. Uh-huh. And a bunch of other train collisions led to the railways holding something called the General Time Convention in 1883, which was a committee of railway companies who wanted to agree on time. Uh-huh. So it took a long time to come to a consensus. A lot of time happening. Yeah. <laughs> it took a lot of time to decide I, on time. I would say let's drink for title, but we'll be shithoused in about five minutes. <laughs> exactly. For a while, they wanted to have a single time for railways, but then keep local times for towns. And it took decades for legislators to come around to the idea of giving up their local time. Mm -hmm. So around this time... (laughs) Around this period. (laughs) Yes, thank you. A Canadian railway engineer named Samford Fleming proposed a single 24-hour clock for the entire world, with time zones sectioned throughout the Earth. I'm just like, I made this up, guys. Go with me on this. Wouldn't this work? Like, could this maybe help us? That's crazy. So the railway companies in America decided on a very similar idea, just like a slight variation on his exact longitudinals, and went with the time zones and what's known as standard railway time, Mm -hmm. which was implemented at noon on November 18th, 1883. All right. But some cities still didn't change. Mm -hmm. Detroit, for example, kept local time until 1900, when the city council decided that the clocks should be turned back 28 minutes to central time. Half the city did it, but the other half refused. Yeah, dude. Eventually, they had to revert back to local time until five years after that, when a city vote decided they'd finally join the rest of the world. It's just because it would just drive you fucking bananas. Right? Like, you can't do anything. And just over to, like, there were these people who were holding on to their old ways, right. and just time took care of that. But just, I mean, again, this is so fascinating to me because I totally understand. Like, sometimes we're slaves to time, right? Right. Like, there's oh, just not oh, enough yeah. hours in the day. Scoodly doodly do. And, you know, time is a construct, what does it mean, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but again, circle. it's like, there's precedent for this. You want your trains to crash. Exactly. Like, this is, there is a fucking reason to, to synchronize your watches, Especially, man. Yeah, it's not like, just meeting at the mall. It's like, <laughs> these things that actually matter, you know? And there was a time where you weren't meeting up with people or considering yeah. schedules over a large... You were just there together. And again, it's like, you know, if back in the old Western days, right, it would be like, meet, high noon. We'll be doing, you know, a duel of sorts. Oh, he's 10 minutes late because his clock is different. And I can tell with the five o'clock shadow, we knew it because of the sun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, standard time became federal law in 1918. But later, when the whole world standardized around Greenwich Mean Time, there was a heated debate over where the zero hour should be located. Uh-huh. Like, France was basically saying it should be a neutral place. Like, it shouldn't be anywhere that is, a, like, a specific country's location. Oh, like being, like, the standard time exactly. of the world. Gotcha. But Britain who was the, on the Meridian, mm-hmm. and America, who had made our train schedules already based off of Greenwich Mean Time, were basically like, fuck you, France, we're doing this. <laughs> right. Oh, boy. So one thing that I think is hilarious is that that conference, originally, the plan was to break the world up into 144 10-minute wide time zones. It's insane. Unbelievable. And eventually they were like, ah, it's not. No, yeah, we'll just man. standardize by the hour and that'll be fine. But I love that like alternate universe where every 10 <laughs> degrees or, or le- fewer than 10 degrees. Is every I mean, 10 yeah, minutes. talk about, yeah, the just I'm thinking about like how many opportunities would be like missed or like how many sliding doors, butterfly effect <laughs> yeah. kind of experiences you'd have as a result of just random time. Right. right. The door closes here, but it's but I had my watch synchronized to the. <laughs> 
London time. London time. Not, yeah, not, I was not Detroit time. Supposed to be okay. <laughs> it is worth noting that there are countries who have applied a single time to the entire nation, even when that country spans many time zones. Really? So this seems to only really happen in countries that put a large value on uniformity. China which is more than three solar hours wide, is placed under one time zone. No way, I mm-hmm. didn't know that. And the Soviet Union was divided into 11 time zones, but all the airports and railroad stations still have to observe Moscow time. That is, that's interesting that, a, that then a country can just like opt out. Right. Here in the United States, we never even thought about putting everything under one time zone. Like uh-huh. that never, we were like, why would you do that? Yeah. But yeah, in Russia, the, all everything goes by Moscow time, but then they still have their own time. I don't know. Yeah. It's complicated. That's fascinating. <laughs> so H.G. Wells wrote The Time Machine. Yes, he did. And I wanted to just do a dive on H.G. Wells because I feel like he comes up a lot on this show. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know much about him as a person, no. but he must be a fascinating guy. He is fascinating. So Herbert George Wells was born in 1866 in Bromley, Kent. He's kind of somewhat destitute, right? Like his parents met when dad was a gardener, mom was a maid at a place. But eventually his dad became a shopkeeper and a professional cricket player. And so he was away from home a lot. And H.G.'s mom felt that the most important thing for her children was to be getting on and to have like a trade or whatever. So she was always trying to get him to apprentice and all this stuff and help out at at the family shop. Practical living. Yeah, exactly. So this is the first interesting tidbit. Wells broke his leg at the age of seven and called it, quote, one of the luckiest events of my life and wrote, quote, I am alive today in writing this autobiography instead of being a worn out, dismissed and already dead shop assistant. Whoa. So he had different, he had different So he broke his leg and then was like, I can write. Yeah, he's like, because, you know, he's having to basically just heal in his bed so he's able to right. read and write and all this stuff. Interesting. So eventually, you know, the shit hits the fan when his dad breaks his leg too. His, oh. <laughs> just a lot of leg breaking wow. and then has to go back to work and whatnot. But so... He's he's fighting this kind of Victorian idea that his mom had created. But at 18, he was invited to apply for a scholarship at the Normal School of Science in South Kensington. The and normal for, school. Yeah. And this was, for the first year, he studied biology and zoology under Thomas H. Huxley, who was the champion of Darwinism in England, and he'd founded the Normal School five years before. So this speech that Huxley gave at Oxford on evolution and ethics really inspired Wells and I think is an important thing to emphasize before everything yeah. else he did. So Huxley said this in a speech. He says, social progress means a checking of the cosmic process at every step and the substitution for it of another, which may be called the ethical process, the end of which is not the survival of those who may happen to be the fittest, but of those who are ethically the best. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. So this conflict, you know, like survival of the fittest versus being the more morally, ethically fittest, this conflict inspired a lot of what Wells went on to write. And for the rest of his life, he carried with him Huxley's ideas, sort of like a nucleus around which he put all of these you know, all, these facts. Yeah, like a basic theme to build everything else off of. Yeah, exactly. So while he was at school as well, he, he co-founded and was the editor for the Science School's journal. And he was publishing a lot of stuff in there that had to do with like the past and present of the human race. So this is in 1893. This is kind of when he's like... To me, it seems like his sort of cynical, angsty college years, right? (laughs) Because in this, the past and present of the human race, he imagined a time when distant descendants of mankind would be great brains floating in tubs of nutritive fluids, when humanity would live by chemicals and sunlight alone on a planet where it had destroyed all other plants and animals, when humanity's heirs would be driven underground by the cooling of the sun and earth to live in galleries linked to the surface by ventilating shafts. Boy, this is is the time machine in a nutshell. (laughs) Exactly. That's so great. So, like, so this is when he kind of first entered the world of like the dystopian future, right? right? Like, and one of the things he talked about is sort of man's complacent assumption that the future is is bright and rosy, right? right like right. we're too confident in that. He says, because we think that things have been easy for mankind as a whole for a generation or so, that we're going to go on to this perfect life of comfort and whatnot. And he's basically saying... In the case of every predominant animal the world has seen, the hour of its complete ascendancy has been the eve of its entire overthrow. Oh, fuck. Right? So at first you're kind of like, whoa, uh, yikes. (laughs) But then like, his big opportunity came when William Ernest Henley, who was the editor of the National Observer and also the author of Invictus, he asked Wells for a series of articles. And Wells dug up what he called his peculiar treasure, which was called the Chronic Argonauts. And he revised it into the seven articles that were later revised 
novelized into a book, and that is The Time Machine. Okay. So while he was waiting for The Time Machine to be published, that's when he sketches out the first draft of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Oh. So listen to this. Fucking Island of Dr. Moreau is published in 1896, Invisible Man, 1897, what? War of the Worlds, 1898, no. When the Sleeper Wakes, 1899, same year as the Tales of Space and Time, and then The First Men in the Moon in 1901. So he fucking writes all of these Dude. stories right then and there. What a prolific era. It's insane. That's almost like when you learn about, because we were talking about Einstein earlier when yeah. he was in the patent office, and there was like a summer where he wrote the four like major theories yes. that we still believe in today um, when he was like 26 years right. old. It's it's like 1994 <laughs> and Jim Carrey, man. Right, exactly. <laughs> Ace Ventura, exactly. the mask, Dumb and Dumber. Big year. But it sounds like he like <laughs> he, he figured out how to write a novel and then had so many different fertile ideas yeah. of like where to take stuff and just just went after yeah. book after book after book. Well and exactly, especially because he was writing so many articles and kind of these little like story ideas and outlines mm -hmm. and stuff in college, then he's able he to kind of those. like put it in there. Especially because what I hadn't mentioned is he was really struggling with a lot with like tuberculosis and a lot of these health really? issues which like made him have to be inside and like okay. in bed and stuff. He was all brain. That's right. But like after 1901, he mostly abandoned science fiction. And then the rest of his writing career was autobiographical novels, what? some like propaganda pieces that kind of seemed like science fiction and then like encyclopedic work. I didn't know that. So, yeah, I didn't know that either. Now, some critics attributed this change in his writing to the turn of the century and the end of Queen Victoria's reign and kind of the casting away of something they call the fin de siècle moment. It's the end of century, but fucking French. <laughs> it's like just being like, yeah. eh, the things are changing. Well, it's you know, a they have the terms, point. especially in literature, it's right, like the, right. the gothic period, the fin de siècle from a century. I don't know. He might have just written himself out, man. He right. wrote like six novels in the span of five years And was years like, I don't need whatever. to do any more sci-fi. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But also, I think what's so interesting, too, is like we when we think back on these big icons of history, we read about them as though it's like a chapter in a textbook when right. really it's like there's a whole life that these people lead. Right. And so even though he's this famous science fiction novelist, he also made this celebrated renunciation of literary art. And actually, in his autobiography from 1934, he pointed out what he saw as distinguishing his intentions from other novelists. He basically said that the literary approach would have taken more time than he could afford. And he's like, I had so much to say. People don't really care if I finish it as long as I could just get the ideas down. Like he didn't like the idea that like people take the time to like finish a novel. Wait, so he was like, forget doing the books? He cared no more for this like finished fundamental like product uh -huh. as he did for just like getting the ideas on paper. And like okay. he wanted a more lax way of writing novels. Like articles. Yeah, like he, he basically was saying that like as the author, I should be able to discuss, point out, bring myself into this mm -hmm. as long as it makes it easier for the reader to understand. Yeah. And in the end, he basically said he re revolted altogether and refused to play the game. And he's like, I'm a journalist yeah. I declared I refuse to play the artist if sometimes I'm an artist it is a freak of the gods I am a journalist all the time and what I write goes not and will presently die wow <laughs> Yeah. What a so, thoughtful guy. He's crazy. Like, he's really introspective. Yeah, it yeah, seems. yeah. Well, it makes me want to actually read his shit because it's right. like I've seen all of the 20th century reimaginings of the stuff that he has done. I, think I read his Invisible Man when I was in high school oh, and was just yeah. blown away by its creativity and the way that like he would describe something unusual and then you'd be like, oh my God, what would that life be? Yeah, exactly. Well, that you hit right on it in terms of like really allowing the reader to not really deal in the reality of right. these things because oh, so this is one of the things I found too is what distinguished Wells from other people like Jules Verne who did what uh, Around the World in 80 Days yeah and, he did Journey to the Center of the right. Earth from the Earth to the Moon yeah so one of the things I was reading is that Verne and other science fiction writers of the period were clearly men of the 19th century mm -hmm. so like when Wells is adapted to other media his stories can be translated into these kind of contemporary situations whereas people like Verne can't really be updated they're always in a period piece like a historical science fiction right right so Vern is concerned with the mechanics of getting there so like he would call his his novels voyages extraordinaire so like <laughs> basically like these adventure stories that are built around an unusual journey whether it's like on a fucking balloon a submarine mm -hmm. a cannon shell that kind of thing well, yeah like 20,000 leagues under the sea right precisely one thing I loved about what I understand is the case in from the earth to the moon is that like later way, way after Jules Verne we wound up using rockets to go there but at the yeah. time 
all that existed were guns. So his idea was a giant gun where a bullet is big enough for like a capsule to fit Uh inside and two people could go into the bullet and get shot to the moon. Right. Wow. So yeah, he's absolutely living in the time that he is. He's not really able to see outside the imagination. But he's also able to go like, we want to go there. This is a projectile. Yeah. We could projectile our way there. On a larger scale, Mm -hmm. right? So whereas Wells is not concerned with how the Martians travel, but what they're going to do. Right. You know, he described his time machine in detail, but didn't think it would actually work. Right. So in an exchange after Wells was called the English Jules Verne, Verne commented, no, there is no rapport between his work and mine. I make <laughs> use of physics. He invents. I go to the moon in a cannonball discharged from a cannon. Yeah, Here there, there is no invention. He goes to Mars in an airship, which he constructs of a metal, which does away with the law of gravitation. Show me this metal. Let him produce it. Huh. And, and Wells said... There's a quality in the worst of my so-called pseudo-scientific stuff which differentiates it from Jules Verne, just as Swift is differentiated from Fantasia, isn't there? There's something other that either story writing or artistic merit which has emerged through the series of my books, something one might regard as a new system of ideas. Thought. Damn. Damn. Yeah, this is the other thing that, to, to your point in terms of like, what would it be like? He says, quote, the thing that makes such imaginations interesting is their translation into commonplace terms and a rigid exclusion of other marvels from the story. Then it becomes human. How would you feel and what might not happen to you is the typical question. If, for instance, pigs could fly and one came rocketing over a hedge at you. How would you feel and what might not happen to you if suddenly you were changed into an ass and couldn't tell anybody about it? Or if you suddenly became invisible? But no one would think twice about the answer if hedges and houses began to fly or if people changed into lions, tigers, cats, and dogs left and right or if anything could vanish anyhow. Nothing remains interesting if anything can happen. Right. Like mm-hmm. the, the thing is the experience of the unusual right. that is the unique experience. Right. Like he is creating the world in which up is down and down is up, right? right? right. Whereas Vern is like, okay, let me imagine a realistic interpretation right. of, you know, what's possible, Well, I it guess. sounds like, because we've talked also about Arthur C. Clarke a bunch, who mm-hmm. came later and wrote 2001 mm-hmm. A Space Odyssey, that he seems to kind of be a good embodiment of both of these philosophies. Yeah, okay. Where he is both inventing real things that are both based on real science ideas, but also is doing this, how would it affect you, Stanley Kubrick-influenced sure. kind of concept. Sure. And so, yeah, I never thought about, like, because there is this timeline of sci-fi writers. Sci-fi was fairly new when Jules Verne was doing it. Hell yeah. And to go through the 60s where you have, like, your Philip K. Dix and your Arthur C. Clarke, it's all a part of this continuum that leads to today. And it Mm -hmm. is interesting that there's, like, a kind of threshold that H.G. Wells is on this side of where you can adapt his ideas to the modern age much more easily. Right. No, absolutely. And then it makes me wonder because, well, one of the reasons we even wanted to do the time machine is because we were so fascinated by the idea of steampunk, right? Right. So H.G. Wells, if he was a guy today writing, he would be considered a steampunk writer. But back in the day, that's why he's considered like the father of tomorrow and the father of science fiction. And I wonder, would you consider Verne steampunk in that way? Because like steampunk, remember we were talking about, is like, this non-reality where it uses modern technology but powered by steam and in the 1800s, right? Yeah, it sounds like he was just using the actual technology of the day. Yeah, to to justify it. What if a submarine could go really deep? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now to finish up on Wells, in 1936, at the age of 71, Wells proposed to the Royal Institution the creation of a, quote, world knowledge bank, a world brain, no less. Mm. So we asked scientists... Wikipedia? (laughs) Right, totally, right? Because he was asking scientists to put together a world encyclopedia, Uh a repository for the mind and knowledge of the race, and he saw it as a, quote, world monopoly. And through it, the encyclopedists would acquire wealth sufficient to finance their activities and to manipulate everyone who controls administration, makes wars, directs mass behavior, feeds, moves, and starves populations, dot, dot, dot. Damn. And I was like... I, I, I like information is power. <laughs> right, right. But I did want to end with what I felt to be a very high note and I think kind of encapsulates why H.G. Wells is such a such a special guy. Mm-hmm. This was from a 1902 speech that he gave to the Royal Institution 
with a declaration of his faith in the power of the human mind to create a better future. And he says, there are two kinds of minds. One, oriented to the past, regards the future as sort of a black non-existence upon which the advancing presently write events. That is the legal mind, always referring to precedence. The second kind of mind, oriented to the future, is constructive, creative, organizing. It sees the world as one great workshop and the present as no more than material for the future, for the thing that is yet destined to be. Finally, he predicted what might be accomplished if the future-oriented mind were given freedom to express himself. He says, All this world is heavy with the promise of greater things, and a day will come, one day in the unending succession of days, when beings who are now latent in our thoughts and hidden in our loins shall stand upon this earth as one stands upon a footstool and shall laugh and reach out their hands amidst the stars. That's so great. I wish people were more flowery these days, man. Like, well, that just like that reminds me of that great line in Hamilton where he's like, "Legacy is planting mm-hmm. a garden that you'll never see the fruits of," or right, something effect, totally. to that effect. Yeah, man, I love it. I I want to hear that over and over again. I'm excited to edit this episode already just so I can hear <laughs> right. that that speech. I mean, I just loved ending there, considering again when he was like an angsty youth was sitting there being like, "We're gonna be just like." Basically, Wally, fat assholes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just ruining the planet and yeah. living underground or whatever. But well, he was mostly right. Mostly right. <laughs> so in this movie, as he goes into the future, he like stops at some point in I guess the mid twenty first century. I'm not sure where. And there's like advertisements for like, we're about to build a new colony on the moon and we're going to use nukes to do it. And mm-hmm. then he goes like a little bit further into the future and we've blown up the moon. Right. Uh, that's right. Oh, man. Yeah. That was like what caused all of these issues. Mm-hmm. And then he goes way into the future and we have the movie. Mm-hmm. But in 1959, there was an insane plan by the Air Force Nuclear Weapons Center to test nuclear weapons in space. <sighs> The idea was being sold in in the interest of science, but it was really like a fuck you show off concept to Russia. Sure, of course. Very space racy era. Get over yourselves. (sighs) Thank God we did a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Because a report that was declassified around the year 2000, Mm -hmm. interestingly, that would have been soon before this movie was made, explains that the motivation for Project A119, as it was called, was to detonate a nuke on the moon, was scientific, military, and political. They were talking about conducting seismic observations on the moon during the blast and test how long radioactive fallout might last Mm -hmm. on the moon. And they were going to drop a small W-25 nuclear warhead along the moon's Terminator. Mm -hmm. The Terminator is the line that separates light and dark on the moon. Mm -hmm. So this way, the mushroom cloud would be lit up by the sun and could be seen easily from Earth. And in particular, you could see it from Moscow. Oh, my God. Just... Get just measure your dicks. Just Get it measure over your with. dicks. <laughs> that would be a way better way to have done this. Yeah. Research showed that they could have definitely pulled this off at the time. More level-headed scientists felt that destroying a pristine lunar environment would be far worse for science than anything we could learn from detonating a nuke on the moon. But the Air Force was more concerned about how the explosion would play on Earth. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. The idea mainly came around because the U.S. was behind in the space race at the time, for sure. Ultimately, we decided not to do it because we were afraid of what the public's reaction would be. I do imagine that, you know, even if it was an American thing, there would probably be some people who are like, fuck yeah, blow up the moon. Yeah, totally. Blow it up, America. (laughs) But I think most Americans would be like, what the fuck are we doing? Why are we doing this? Yeah, we just walked on it. Like, what are you? No, actually, we were 10 years away from walking on it. Oh, right. We decided to walk on it instead. I prefer that. Yeah, just do a fucking sweet moonwalk instead of being like, hey, look, I blew shit up, Moscow. It's a way better way to show dominance. <laughs> oh, my God. That, uh, it just bums me out that that's the reason. I mean, I don't know. I guess we all have a competitive spirit or whatever, but it's like. It's crazy. Well, because it was that one-upsmanship of just like showing yeah. how strong your muscles are. Right. Not just for the sake of understanding and discovering the universe around us, right. but just to be like, hey, you. Well, that's the thing. Like, the truth is, us going to the moon in 1960s made no sense. Like, it literally was nothing. Why would you do space exploration in that way? Yeah. Only for a show off. I know. I know. But also, there was a concern that if the rocket missed the moon, it could wind up coming back down to Earth. 
Really? Yeah. Because th- that was a common thing that was happening in those early stages where like we would send a probe hopefully to impact the moon and we would just miss. Yeah. And just go off of it in the solar system. Oh, totally. I could see that happening. Interestingly, a very young Carl Sagan was involved in the planning of this, even though later in his life he was vehemently against sure. nuclear weapons. And the whole thing actually only came out because of research somebody was doing on a biography about Carl Sagan. Uh-huh. Otherwise, we might still not know that this happened. Yeah. By 1967, though, after the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty and the Outer Space Treaty, detonating nuclear weapons on or around the moon was agreed to be a bad idea. Yeah. We decided not to do it. <laughs> we have this convention. I mean, like, anybody could break it, but... Right. We're like, we... We already disagree on what to blow up on the fucking planet <laughs> on the here. Pla- yeah. so. Let's at least decide not to do it up there. <laughs> right. We actually have done missions that cause small explosions on the moon. One was to eject a plume of material out of a deep crater on the moon so that it could be analyzed and we can understand the moon better, which does make sense. And a nuke would have only been to like show Destroy. off horrifying yeah. force. From what I read about how much force a nuke would have on the moon... You would need more than 200 billion of the strongest nuclear bombs to go off in order to seriously affect the moon. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, Interesting. I guess it's possible that in the future of this movie, The Time Machine, we have stronger nukes. But what they're saying they're using the nukes for is like to tunnel out a thing for right. a habitat. Right. And you would just never be able to blow up the moon through a nuke of that nuclear size. Stuff. Oh, interesting. Also, final tidbit about the moon. Right now, it's moving away from us at about an inch a year, but eventually, after 65 billion years, it will fall back down to Earth and crush us all. What? Luckily, okay. the sun will have long exploded by then, so we'll all be dead anyway. <laughs> Silver linings. <laughs> Silver linings. Silver linings. <laughs> There's a scene where they're tinkering around in the inventor's lair. Yeah. And someone fucks around with an electric toothbrush. And I was like, what's the deal? Oh, yeah. So there we go. Let's do it. Yeah. So, well, first, it actually, in order to learn the history of the electric toothbrush, you have to learn the history of the regular old manual toothbrush. Oh, my God. So I didn't know that chew sticks were the first civilizational tools of oral hygiene. Oh, man. Which was basically just a tree twig with a frayed end that you'd rub against your teeth. Interesting. And then the other end would be a pointed, sticky thing so that it'd be a toothpick, right? This is just reminding me of when I spent time in Peru. Usually when people came in, the dental hygiene was beyond bad. Sure, it, sure. Was, it was something that like they just didn't really have toothbrushes yeah. or toothpaste. But there was one guy who came in who was over 90 years old and he looked incredible. <laughs> and he had like better teeth than almost anybody that I'd seen. Yeah. And when I asked about why this was, it was that they said that he was out in the fields and all day his whole life he's been chewing coca leaves. Oh, interesting. Which I mean, yeah, like getting high. Definitely, but, people still do the chew stick thing. Right, like, people well, still use them. That was the thing. Was I was just amazed at like, wait a minute. So, and they were like, yeah. Not only does he enjoy the coca leaf, sure, but it's, it's like great good for, for great for his teeth. Pearly whites. Yeah, so the chew sticks were first noted in 3500 BC in Babylonia, and similar designs were excavated from an Egyptian tomb that date back to 3000 BC. The first instances of bristle toothbrushes were found in the Tang Dynasty, which is around 600 to 900. And sometime in the early parts of the 13th century, a Japanese traveler chronicled tales of Chinese monks who'd clean their teeth with horsehair bristles and handles made from ox bones. Ooh, I, I would have guessed horsehair. Yeah, been animal hair kind of mm, makes sense. That yeah. like rough, brittle stuff. Yeah, yeah. Napoleon is said to have famously used a horsehair toothbrush. Ooh. But in 1770, a man by the name of William Addis was jailed for causing a riot. And at that time, the common method for cleaning teeth was rubbing them with salty rags. Oh, my God. (laughs) So Addis ended up, he grabs a leftover bone from his previous meal, and he drills a bunch of tiny holes in them. He gets some bristles from a guard somehow and ties them together and sewed them into the holes. So he glues it all together, and bada bing, you got the first modern fucking toothbrush. There you go. So he gets out of jail. He sets up a toothbrush manufacturing business, which stayed with the family until 1996. No way. This is the famous wisdom toothbrush. So what? from like, you know, approximately 17, 1800 or whatever 
1996. Generation after generation? Just being like, eh, it all started from William. Wow. William we the, were the original. The bone handle. The- <laughs> so by the middle of the 19th century, countries like Germany, Japan, France, and England, they began mass producing toothbrushes. And most of the cheaper versions still used pig hair, while some of the more expensive ones used badger hair. Oh. But by the start of the 20th century, <laughs> people started looking for replacements for animal bristles. And that's when the synthetic bristles came in. So they were obviously stronger and longer lasting and cheaper and shit. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 1938 that the first nylon bristles were made. And then the first non-animal bone handles were made of celluloid, which is part of film. Like they eventually introduced like thermoplastic materials for the handle and stuff. But as far as electric toothbrushes, in 1880, this English doctor known as Dr. Scott advertised the first electric toothbrush. He also advertised electric hair brushes and something he called an electric flesh brush. Really? <laughs> But, My assumption would be that this would be an electric toothbrush and vibrator company. Right? <laughs> Do they not oh, the flesh have brush. a yeah. bit of a... <laughs> but what's interesting is like the toothbrushes only had slightly magnetized iron rods in the handles. They used no electricity whatsoever. Huh. So, so they weren't electric at all. at all. No. The first effective electric toothbrush <laughs> was known as the Broxident. And that was invented in Switzerland in 1954 by Dr. Philippe G. Woog. And then they later introduced the, these toothbrushes in the U.S. at the 100 anniversary of the American Dental Association in 1960. The original ones, obviously, like, they didn't have batteries. You had to plug it into a wall and all mm. that stuff. But, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting to think that it's very recent history, and especially, right. like, these days with the shit. Like, I didn't know that there was a differentiation between sonic and electric toothbrushes. Did you know that? No, I, I thought that sonic was just, like, another name for the... Same, like a yeah. brand name. Exactly. Well, electric toothbrushes are designed to replicate hand motions. So okay. they can, like, rotate. They can move back and forth mm-hmm. like they physically move right mm-hmm. and they can they can do like 3,000 motions per minute like somewhere between 3,000 and 7,500 wow. the sonic ones which is what what I use I don't know if you use one but they're a lot faster they can deliver up to 40,000 strokes every minute mm. when you brush your teeth manually you can deliver around 250 to 350 strokes so quite a bit different a lot more strokes <laughs> yeah is the sonic one actually using sound waves to slam into your teeth I think I think so right like it's the vibrations that it's just basically able to like right. sonic wave the well, plaque away. I know Doctor away. Who has a sonic screwdriver. Does he? Does he use it to clean his teeth? Can I don't he do know. That? You're he talking does. to me like I know anything about Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, the audience, they'll let us know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They have fucking, there's fancy pants electric toothbrushes that I guess have Bluetooth capability where <laughs> like data can be sent from the toothbrush to an app so you can see how much pressure oh. you used and how long you brushed your teeth. It's like, ah, I know there's an app for everything right. but like. Oral hygiene. Yeah, just go to the dentist. Mofo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> prove to the dentist that how much you've been brushing. That's right. Did you have any favorite lines? Let's see. Did I? Yes. Though, yeah, there was one that was like, are you going too far? And he was basically like, there's no such thing. No as such thing as too far with technology. And then one that I thought was just like, <laughs> so on the nose. We all have our time machines, don't we? <laughs> Wait, that, <laughs> like, <really>? Yeah. <laughs> We all wear masks, don't we? Metaphorically speaking. We all have our time machines, metaphorically <laughs> like, speaking. What do you mean? No, I, I don't. I you don't mean have like a, time- a photo album? <laughs> I don't like. I wrote down there's like a moment where Guy Pierce says to the people in the future sometimes you have to accept the world around you, and sometimes you have to fight. And yeah. it's like, it is hard to make that distinction sometimes of like, sometimes you just accept the way the world works and sometimes you need to change the world. Right. What was that in regards to though? Do you know like, like in particular? They were they were accepting that the monsters would take their family members down to the underworld and they would never fight back. Oh, okay. And he was like, sometimes you got to accept the way the world works. Sometimes you got to change it. Right. Yeah. To that, I'm just sort of like, yep. (laughs) Yep. Well, anyway, (laughs) please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and ohthatsathing on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's Joya Mia on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman, and you can find us here next week. Oh, my God. Doing the movie Biodome. Mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. The movie's a bummer, but I'm sure the show's going to be great. That's right. (laughs) Bye. Bye.